Section 5 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kristen Edwards. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Husinge, translated by Frederick Jan Hopmann. Chapter 3 The Hierarchic Conception of Society. When somewhat more than a hundred years ago medieval history began to assert itself as an object of interest and admiration, the first element of it to draw general attention and to become a source of enthusiasm and inspiration was chivalry. To the epoch of Romanticism, the Middle Ages and chivalry were almost synonymous terms. Historical imagination dwelt by preference on crusades, tournaments, knights-errant. Since then, history has become democratic. Chivalry is now only seen as a very special efflorescence of civilization which, far from having controlled the course of medieval history, has been rather a secondary factor in the political and social evolution of the epoch. For us, the problems of the Middle Ages lie, first of all, in the development of communal organization, of economic conditions, of monarchic power, of administrative and judicial institutions, and, in the second place, in the domain of religion, scholasticism, and art. Towards the end of the period, our attention is almost entirely occupied by the genesis of new forms of political and economic life, absolutism, capitalism, and new modes of expression, renaissance. From this point of view, feudalism and chivalry appear as little more than a remnant of a superannuated order already crumbling into insignificance and, for the understanding of the epoch, almost negligible. Nevertheless, an assiduous reader of the chronicles and literature of the 15th century will hardly resist the impression that nobility and chivalry occupy a much more considerable place there than our general conception of the epoch would imply. The reason of this disproportion lies in the fact that, long after nobility and feudalism had ceased to be really essential factors in the state and in society, they continued to impress the mind as dominant forms of life. The men of the 15th century could not understand that the real moving powers of political and social evolution might be looked for anywhere else than in the doings of a warlike or courtly nobility. They persisted in regarding the nobility as the foremost of social forces and attributed a very exaggerated importance to it undervaluing altogether the social significance of the lower classes. So the mistake, it may be argued, is theirs, and our conception of the Middle Ages is right. This would be so if, to understand the spirit of an age, it sufficed to know its real and hidden forces, and not its illusions, its fancies, and its errors. But for the history of civilization, every delusion or opinion of an epoch has the value of an important fact. In the 15th century, chivalry was still, after religion, 
the strongest of all the ethical conceptions which dominated the mind and the heart. It was thought of as the crown of the whole social system. Medieval political speculation is imbued to the marrow with the idea of a structure of society based upon distinct orders. This notion of orders is itself by no means fixed. The words estate and order, almost synonymous, designate a great variety of social realities. The idea of an estate is not at all limited to that of a class. It extends to every social function, to every profession, to every group. Side by side with the French system of the three estates of the realm, which in England, according to Professor Pollard, was only secondarily and theoretically adopted after the French model, we find traces of a system of twelve social estates. The functions or groupings, which the Middle Ages designated by the words estate and order, are of very diverse natures. There are, first of all, the estates of the realm, but there are also the trades, the state of matrimony, and that of virginity, the state of sin. At court, there are the four states of body and mouth, breadmasters, cup-bearers, carvers, and cooks. In the church, there are sacerdotal orders and monastic orders. Finally, there are the different orders of chivalry. That which, in medieval thought, establishes unity in the very dissimilar meanings of the word is the conviction that every one of these groupings represents a divine institution, an element of the organism of creation emanating from the will of God, constituting an actual entity, and being, at bottom, as venerable as the angelic hierarchy. Now, if the degrees of the social edifice are conceived as the lower steps of the throne of the eternal, the value assigned to each order will not depend on its utility, but on its sanctity, that is to say, its proximity to the highest place. Even if the Middle Ages had recognized the diminishing importance of the nobility as a limb of the social body, that would not have changed the conception they had of its high value. No more than the spectacle of a violent and dissipated nobility ever hindered the veneration of the order in itself. To the Catholic soul the unworthiness of the persons never compromises the sacred character of the institution. The morals of the clergy, or the decadence of chivalrous virtues, might be stigmatized without deviating for a moment from the respect due to the church or the nobility as such. The estates of society cannot be venerable and lasting, because they all have been ordained by God. The conception of society in the Middle Ages is statical, not dynamical. The aspect which society and politics assume under the influence of these general ideas is bound to be a strange one. The chroniclers of the fifteenth century have, nearly all, been the dupes of an absolute misappreciation of their times, of which the real moving forces escaped their attention. Chastelaine, the historiographer of the Dukes of Burgundy, may serve as an instance. A Fleming by birth, he had been face to face in the Netherlands with the power and the wealth of the commoners, nowhere stronger and more self-conscious than there. The extraordinary fortune 
of the Burgundian branch of Valois transplanted to Flanders was in reality based on the wealth of the Flemish and Brabant towns. Nevertheless, dazzled by the splendor and magnificence of an extravagant court, Castilian imagined that the power of the house of Burgundy was especially due to the heroism and the devotion of knighthood. God, he says, created the common people to till the earth and to procure by trade the commodities necessary for life. He created the clergy for the works of religion, the nobles that they should cultivate virtue and maintain justice, so that the deeds and the morals of these fine personages might be a pattern to others. All the highest tasks in the state are assigned by Chastillion to the nobility, notably those of protecting the church, augmenting the faith, defending the people from oppression, maintaining public prosperity, combating violence and tyranny, confirming peace. Veracity, courage, integrity, liberality appertain properly to the noble class and French nobility, according to this pompous panegyrist, comes up to this ideal image. In spite of his general pessimism, Chastillian does his best to see his times through the tinted glasses of this aristocratic conception. This failing to see the social importance of the common people, which is proper to nearly all authors of the 15th century, may be regarded as a kind of mental inertia, which is a phenomenon of frequent occurrence and vital importance in history. The idea which people had of the third estate had not yet been corrected and remodeled in accordance with altered realities. This idea was simple and summary, like those miniatures of breveries, or those bas reliefs of cathedrals representing the tasks of the year in the shape of the toiling laborer, the industrious artisan, or the busy merchant. Among archaic types like these, there is neither place for the figure of the wealthy patrician encroaching upon the power of the nobleman, nor for that of the militant representative of a revolutionary craft guild. Nobody perceived that the nobility only maintained itself, thanks to the blood and the riches of the commoners. No distinction in principle was made in the third estate between rich and poor citizens, nor between townsmen and country people. The figure of the poor peasant alternates indiscriminately with that of the wealthy burgher, but a sound definition of the economic and political functions of these different classes does not take shape. In 1412, the reform program of an Augustinian friar demanded in all earnest that every non-noble person in France should either devote himself to some handicraft or to labor, or be banished from the kingdom, evidently considering commerce and law as useless occupations. Testellian, who is very naive in political matters and very susceptible to ethical delusions, attributes sublime virtues only to the nobility, and only inferior ones to the common people. Coming to the third estate, making up the kingdom as a whole, it is the estate of the good towns, of merchants and of laboring men, of whom it is not becoming to give such a long exposition as of the others, because it is hardly possible to attribute great qualities to them, as they are of a servile degree. Humility, diligence, obedience to the king, 
and docility in bowing voluntarily to the pleasure of the lords those are the qualities which bring credit to cestui va estin de francois this low estate of frenchmen may not this strange infatuation by preventing them from foreseeing future times of economic expansion have contributed to engender pessimism in minds such as that of Chastillian, who could only expect the good of mankind from the virtues of the nobility? Chastillian still calls the rich burghers simply villiens. He has not the slightest notion of middle-class honor. Duke Philip the Good was wont to abuse his power by marrying his archers, or other servants of lesser gentility, to rich burgher widows or heiresses, to avoid these alliances the parents on their side married their daughters as soon as they reached marriageable age jacques de clerc mentions the case of a widow who for this reason remarried two days after the burial of her husband once the duke while engaged in such marriage broking met with an obstinate refusal from a rich brewer of lille who felt affronted at such an alliance for his daughter the duke secured the person of the young girl. The father removed with all his possessions to Tournay, outside the ducal jurisdiction, in order to be able to bring the matter before the Parliament of Paris. This brought him nothing but vexation, and he fell ill with grief. At last he sent his wife to Lille, in order to beg mercy of the duke and give up his daughter to him. The latter, in honor of Good Friday, gave her back to the mother, but with scornful and humiliating words. Chastillian sympathies are all on the side of his master, though on other occasions he did not at all fear to record his disapproval of the duke's conduct. For the injured father, he has no other terms than this rebellious rustic brewer, and such a naughty villain, too. There are in the sentiments of the aristocratic class towards the people two parallel currents. Side by side with this haughty disdain of the small man, already a little out of date, we notice a sympathetic attitude in the nobility which seems in absolute contrast with it. Whereas feudal satire goes on expressing hatred mixed with contempt and sometimes with fear, as in the Proverbe del Vilain and in the the song of the flemish villagers the code of aristocratic ethics teaches on the other hand a sentimental compassion for the miseries of the oppressed and defenceless people despoiled by war exploited by the officials the people live in the greatest distress si faux de fin perrier les innocents dans les grands loups font chacun jour ventre qui en maison à meilleur et à cent le faux trésoir c'est le grain c'est le blé le sang les eaux qui ont la terre arrêt des poires gens dans leur esprit crier vengeance à dieu veille à la seigneurie the innocents must starve with which the big wolves fill their belly every day who by thousands and hundreds hoard ill-gotten treasures. It is the grain, it is the corn, the blood, the bones of poor people which have plowed the earth, and therefore their souls call upon God for vengeance and woe to lordship. They suffer in patience. 
the prince knows nothing of this if at times they murmur poor sheep poor foolish people a word from the prince will suffice to appease them the devastation and insecurity which in consequence of the hundred years war had finally spread over almost all france gave these laments a sad actuality from the year fourteen hundred downwards there was no end to the complaints about the fate of the peasants plundered squeezed maltreated by gangs of enemies or friends robbed of their cattle driven from their homes they are expressed by the great churchmen who favored reform such as nicolas de clemange in his libère de l'absurde et réparatant justice or gerson in his political sermon viva rex preached on november seventh fourteen o five in the queen's palace at paris before the regents and the court the poor man said the brave chancellor will not have bread to eat except perhaps a handful of rye or barley his poor wife will lie in and they will have four or six little ones about the hearth or the oven which perchance will be warm they will ask for bread they will scream mad with hunger the poor mother will but have a very little salted bread to put into their mouths now such misery ought to suffice but no the plunderers will come who will seek everything everything will be taken and snapped up and we need not ask who pays statesmen too make themselves the spokesmen of the miserable people and utter their complaints jean juvenel laid them before the state of blois in fourteen thirty three and those of orleans in fourteen thirty nine in a petition presented to the king at the meeting of the states of tours in fourteen eighty four these complaints take the direct form of a political remonstrance the chroniclers could not help reverting to the subject again and again it was bound up with their subject matter the poets in their turn took hold of the motif Hélène chartier treats it in his quadrologue invectif and robert gauguin in his débat du laboureur du prêtre et du gendarme inspired by chartier a hundred years after la complainte de pauvres commune et des pauvres labeurs de france of about fourteen hundred jean molinet was to compose a ressource du petit peuple jean machinot never tires of reminding the ruling classes of the fact that the common people are being neglected oh dieu voyez du commune l'indulgence pourvoyez-y à toute diligence las parfum froid parreur et misère tremble si la péché ou commis négligence en contre vous il demande indulgence n'espite des biens que l'on lui humble il n'a plus blé pour potier au boulin en lui offre drape de lin et de ligne l'ouïe sans plus lui demeure pour boire o oh god see the indulgence of the common people provide for it with all speed alas with hunger cold fear and misery they tremble if they have sinned or are guilty of negligence toward thee 
they beg indulgence is it not a pity that they are bereft of their goods they have no more corn to take to the mill woolen and linen goods are taken from them only water is left to them to drink this pity however remains sterile it does not result in acts not even in programs of reform the felt need of serious reform is wanting to it and will be wanting for a long time in la bruyere in felon perhaps in the elder mirabeau the theme is still the same even they have not yet got beyond theoretical and stereotyped commiseration it is natural that the belated chivalrous spirits of the fifteenth century join in this chorus of pity for the people was it not the knight's duty to protect the weak the ideal of chivalry implied after all two ideas which might seem to concur in forbidding a haughty contempt for the small man the ideas namely that true nobility is based on virtue and that all men are equal we should be careful not to overrate the importance of these two ideas they were equally stereotyped and theoretical to acknowledge true chivalry a matter of the heart should not be considered a victory over the spirit of feudalism or an achievement of the renaissance this medieval notion of equality is by no means a manifestation of the spirit of revolt it does not owe its origin to radical reformers in quoting the text of john ball who preached the revolt of thirteen eighty one when adam delved and eve span who was then the gentleman one is inclined to fancy that the nobles must have trembled on hearing it but in fact it was the nobility themselves who for a long time had been repeating this ancient theme the two ideas of the equality of men and of the nature of true nobility were commonplaces of courteous literature just as they were in the salons of the ancien regime both derived from antiquity the poetry of the troubadours had sung and popularized them every one applauded them don vient à tout souverain noblesse du gentil cœur pareil de noble mots nul nevelin c'est du cœur ne lui muit whence comes to all sovereign nobility from a gentle heart adorned by noble morals no one is a villain unless it comes from his heart the notion of equality had been borrowed by the fathers of the church from cicero and seneca gregory the great the great initiator of the middle ages had given a text for coming ages in his ominous namque hominis natura aquilis sumus it had been repeated in all keys but an actual social purport was not attached to it it was a moral sentence nothing more to the men of the middle ages it meant the approaching equality of death and was far from holding out as a consolation for the iniquities of this world a deceptive prospect of equality on earth the thought of equality in the middle ages is closely akin to a memento mori Thus we find it in a ballad by Eustache Deschamps, where Adam addresses his posterity. Enfant, enfant, de moi, Adam, venu, 
qui après Dieu suit Père Prémarin, créé de lui, tout est descendé, naturellement de Marcos et Déviant. Vos mères fuient. Comment est le vilain? Et l'autre prend le nom de gentillesse. De vous, frère, d'en vient telle noblesse? Je ne le sais. C'est ce n'est des vertus. Et le vélin de tout vice qui blesse. Vous êtes tout d'une pelle revestue. Quand Dieu me fiste de la boue où je fusse, homme mortel, faible, pesant et vain, Yves de Moy, il ne cria tout nu, mais l'espérer nous inspira à plein, perpétuel, puis exumis, soit et fin. Labeur, douleur, et enfants en tristesse, pour non pécher enfantin à détresse. Toute femme vivement est conçue, vous êtes tous d'une pelle revestuse. L'héroï puissant, les comtés et les dus, le gouverneur du peuple est souverain. Quand il n'est un, de cueil sont-ils festus, d'une horde pelle, prince, pensée, sans avoir en dessein, le pauvre Jean, que la mort tient le frein. Children, descended from me, Adam, who am the first father after God, created by him, you are all born naturally of my rib and of Eve. She was your mother. How is it that one is a villain, and the other assumes the name of gentility, of you, brothers? Whence comes such nobility? I do not know unless it springs from virtues, and the villains from all vice which wounds. You are all covered by the same skin. When God made me out of the mud where I lay, a mortal man, feeble, heavy, and vain, Eve out of me he created us quite nude, but the Spirit fully inspired us. Afterwards we were perpetually thirsty and hungry. We labored, suffered, children were born in sorrow. For our sins all women bear children in pain. Vilely you are conceived. Whence then comes this name? Villain that wounds the hearts. You are all covered by the same skin. The mighty kings, the counts and the dukes, the governor of the people and sovereign, when they are born, with what are they clothed? By a dirty skin. Prince, remember without disdaining the poor people that death holds the reins. Jean le maire de Belge, in Les Chansons de Namur, purposely mentions the exploits of rustic heroes to acquaint the nobles with the fact that those whom they treat as villains are sometimes animated by the greatest gallantry. For the reason of these poetical admonitions on the subject of true nobility and human equality, 
generally lies in the stimulus they impart to the nobles to adapt themselves to the true ideal of knighthood and thereby to support and to purify the world in the virtues of the nobles says chastelian lies the remedy for the evils of the time the wheel of the kingdom the peace of the church the rule of justice depends on them two things it is said in le livre de fact de marshal bouquiat have by the will of god been established in the world like two pillars to sustain the order of divine and human laws and without which the world would be like a confused thing and without any order these two flawless pillars are chivalry and learning which go very well together learning faith and chivalry are the three flowers of the chapelle des fleurs de lis of philippe de vitry it is the duty of knighthood to preserve and protect the two others long after the middle ages a certain equivalence of knighthood and a doctor's degree was generally acknowledged this parallelism indicates the high ethical value attaching to the idea of chivalry the two dignities of a knight and of a doctor are conceived as the sacred forms of two superior functions that of courage and of knowledge by being knighted the man of action is raised to an ideal level by taking his doctor's degree the man of knowledge receives a badge of superiority they are stamped the one as a hero the other as a sage the devotion to a higher life work is expressed by a ceremonial consecration if as an element of social life the idea of chivalry has been of much greater importance it was because it contained besides its ethical value an abundance of aesthetic value of the most suggestive kind end of section five